The scripture for this morning will be from Matthew eleven twenty five to 30. And these five verses will uh, also be used for the next three sermons. And at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You can please be seated. I want to briefly touch on two points of Rodney's prayer. First, Winston and Brenda Miller, many of you remember them, uh, a dear part of our church. I had some overlap with him. Their church plant is launching today, right now. And so if you knew the Millers, certainly pray for them. You can pray for them even if you didn't know them. But if you did know them, I think they'd be very encouraged if you'd reach out in some way today just to let them know that, that you're praying for them and we're thankful for what they're doing. Secondly, family night meeting. I know a couple of you snuck in after the, uh, the announcements in the beginning. So if that's you, there's grace. And we want to invite you to our family night meeting from five to six tonight. This is kind of, this is the first one in a year. We're going to be talking about a lot of stuff, our relaunching of our Sunday morning ministries, what we need from you to make that happen, where we are in the mass conversation, 2021 goals, annual report. There's a lot of a lot of stuff that I think uh, at, at least the members really need to hear. And, uh, and if you're not a member, you're invited to come and listen and learn more about our church and what we're doing and where we're going. So that's that. Uh, as you know, we've been reading Gentle and Lowly as a church, and, uh, and we're getting closer and closer to those, those three verses that this book was written on. So, of course, verses 28 through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." Dane Ortland, he addresses, he addresses these verses kind of like the Puritans used to. They would take one verse or maybe two and just squeeze them for all they're worth. So it was pretty common for the Puritans to write a whole book or even volumes of books on just one or two verses. And that's exactly what he's done with this book. Now, that's not my, my practice to, to just spend weeks and weeks and weeks on one verse. It's not a bad practice. That's just not what we do here. But I do want to kind of in light of how Dane Ortland has gone about this book, I want to just slow down. You know, as we get, I didn't plan on slowing down, but every week I've kind of slowed down a little more. It's kind of like Interstellar, if you've seen that movie, or if, you, if you've just happened to study astrophysics on your spare time, you know that as you get closer to a black hole, time slows down. So that, to me, it feels that way. As we get closer and closer to these verses, we, we're, we're slowing down and looking, taking more time on smaller chunks, uh, really because how much I'm learning personally in these, in these texts, how much I'm learning in this book. And, and so I want, to, I want to slow down and make sure we give these, these verses in 
uh, these five verses particularly, all the, all the time that they deserve. So last week, we looked at Jesus's hard words for all these unrepentant cities. Uh, it was the, basically the, the message was condemnation for unrepentant people. And that was the Valentine's Day sermon. So now we get to flip a little bit and this in, in this, we move from the condemned to the accepted, and we, we get to look at this invitation that Jesus is offering. The greatest invitation that has ever or will ever be extended to the human race, uh, and it, an invitation that will span these, these five verses, and this is an invitation that, that calls, us, calls us to let down our guard, to come to Jesus, and to experience the rest that only he can offer. And if we have eyes to see it, if, if you're anything like me, when, when we come to these passages, and I don't, it doesn't matter to me how many times I come to these verses, we see things, new things about Jesus that we never saw before. You know, you, we can, I'm tempted to, to think that I know all that I need to know about Jesus, or maybe all that there is that the humans can know about Jesus. But every time I feel like I get to one of those plateaus, all of a sudden there's this whole new aspect to Jesus that I realize I didn't know, and it just makes me want to know more. And so I had a really weird experience this week. Uh, my family and I found out that my grandfather, my deceased grandfather, who we knew was an army colonel, was also a CIA operative. It was just something you can't talk about. If you are, you're never allowed to talk about. And, and it's co- kind of complicated how I found out, but an ex-CIA friend discovered it. And he didn't break any laws in telling me. But here we are with, you know, here, this is my grandfather, somebody that I feel like I knew, you know, reasonably well. He grew up in the same town. We would see each other about once a week. In my college years, I got to sit down with him and ask him about his, his pretty successful military career, career from World War II. That does not count for my quote of World War II illustrations, too, all the way through Vietnam. And and it, it, he has a fascinating life. And there were lots of gaps for me, but they're continually filled in by my dad and his siblings. And then all of a sudden, here's this bomb and there's this whole part of him that none of us ever knew about. And, and it leaves me not feeling betrayed in any way. I'm, I'm excited for him. And there's all these questions I wish I could ask now. There are these parts of his life that I want to know more now. And so for me, when we walk through these passages, that, that, that is kind of a microcosm of how this should leave us with Jesus. We're just dropped with these bombs of who Jesus is that should make us want to really know him more, to realize how, how little we know and want to know him more. And so that's been my experience, uh, partly because I've had the privilege of being able to study these, to preach these passages because I've been reading this book and some other things going on in my life. I feel like I'm in a season where there's so much more to Jesus than I feel like I've ever realized. And it leaves me just excited to know him more. And so here's what I want to do. My hope is that we would, over the next three weeks, we would see this invitation and that we wouldn't just know more about Jesus, but that we would really desire to know Jesus more. And so the way I want to do it, the whole passage, as I've said, the five verses is about the great invitation, the greatest of invitations. And normally I would take a Sunday and, you know, that's expository preaching is what's the main point, the great invitation. And then what does Jesus say about the main point? And not shockingly, I see three things that Jesus says about the three points. But instead of doing all that, blowing through all of it on a Sunday, I want to spread it out over the next three weeks. So each point is going to be its own sermon, uh, kind of one sermon over three weeks. 
And so this week, we're going to see how, uh, how we have access to this invitation. Next week, we're going to see who it is that's extending us this invitation. And then in two weeks, we're going to actually see the invitation itself. So this week, we're just going to cover the first two verses of this passage and see how we have access to this invitation. And the answer is because God has chosen to reveal it to us. Let's look at verses 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So this is one of those verses that the first time you interact with it, it can be a little bit scary. I mean, Jesus is saying that God has hidden this invitation from some people and that he's revealed it to other people. Specifically, that he's, he's hidden it from the wise and understanding. Some of your translations say the wise and learned. And so I, I think this, this doesn't, isn't limited to, but certainly includes the Pharisees and the religious leaders of their day. You know, I don't know that they had air quotes back in Jesus' day, but if they did, I picture Jesus saying, thank you that you've hidden it from the, the wise and understanding. And so we know it doesn't, doesn't just affect the Pharisees and it, it isn't limited really to a level of education because It's coming on the heels of Jesus pronouncing these woes and this condemnation to all all these three cities and many, most of whom would have never had the access to education the way the Pharisees and the religious leaders would have. And so Jesus is saying something more than just a simple education level. He's speaking to people who are wise and learned in their own eyes. He's speaking to people who feel like they're self-sufficient. They've figured this thing out with God. He's speaking to people who do not see their need for Jesus and they don't see how Jesus really offers them anything more than a few entertaining miracles. So in short, he's speaking to the prideful. And wisdom obviously is a biblical virtue. Wisdom is something we should seek after. Jesus is in no way bemoaning wisdom here. But the problem is that people in these days, they had hijacked the idea of biblical wisdom. So N.T. Wright points out, I think very helpfully, that in those days, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they sought wisdom by learning the law, that's not bad, and attaining it, that's bad. Changing parts of the law to make them feel like they were attaining the law, and then that's the way that they would gain wisdom, which would then gain them access to God. That was basically the way that they knew God is through this earned wisdom. And there are lots of problems with that, not least of which is that it would, if that was how you knew God, through that kind of wisdom that you would change through knowing the law and accomplishing the law, then that would functionally leave out about as, it would leave as many people left out as it would today if we were talking about becoming brain surgeons or astronauts. So that's not the biblical path to wisdom. And so the woes that Jesus has just pronounced, they're woes for people who think that they can do this themselves. Psalms tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And these people are functionally living out of the the human effort is the beginning of wisdom. So they're turning this around and the reality of Jesus remains hidden to those people. But who does it go to? The little children. Some people, some translations say the little ones. And I don't think this is referring to age 
any more than he was referring to education when he talks about the people who, whom it was hidden from. He's contrasting the self-sufficient and the unrepentant people with those who are dependent, understanding that they have a long way to go, wanting to learn. And he, he, he contrasts the self-sufficient with those who, who see such a gap between Jesus and them that they're, they're likened to little children compared to what, who he is and what he's teaching. And I want that to just settle for a moment. I mean, really think about what he's saying. God has chosen to hide this invitation from some people. And he has chosen to reveal it to others. How does that feel? Does that feel off to you in some way? Does that feel unfair to you in some way? I'll tell you the first time I interacted with this, it felt, it felt off to me. So if you feel that way, I'm not here to condemn you. I don't want you to stay there. But Jesus takes that a step further here. He doesn't just say that it's a fact that God chooses some and not others, that he reveals and hides. In this passage, he's thanking God for that. In Luke's account of the, main, of the, of the same event, Luke says that Jesus is overflowing for this fact. There's something about this that's causing Jesus to overflow in joy and thank God that God is revealing to some and hiding to others. So how can that be? It's one thing to think it's true. How can Jesus overflow with joy that this is true? So I want to take a stab at first convincing you from the Bible that it is true and that it is fair, but I don't want to stop there. I want to take a stab at trying to create the same kind of joy and thankfulness that Jesus is experiencing this passage because God is revealing and hiding. And if it feels unfair, that's where we can start. If it feels unfair, then, then we have a skewed view of God and, and our relationship to him. Because to feel like this is unfair, we're assuming that there are some people who actually merit this. You know, to, if it feels unfair, we're, we're, we have this idea of a God who's arbitrarily in heaven, choosing some and not choosing other, others. And, and maybe these people were more deserving than these people. And maybe these people actually earned something much more than we could ever do. And, and they didn't get it. And so we're starting off with this unfair understanding of an earned grace, which which really isn't any grace at all. And it it kind of just continues the old, but what about the innocent person way off over there? But the Bible would ask you back, what innocent people? What innocent people are we talking about? Because we're talking about one entire race of sinners. That's, That's who we're talking about. One race of sinners, all who have rebelled against God. So if it started off by saying that doesn't feel fair, we're ignoring the gravity of the problem. In chapter seven of Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland he drills down on our sin and he says we have to see the gravity of our sin before we're going to see the beauty of the invitation. And if we're thinking God is unfair in any way, we are not getting the gravity of our sin. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says it like this, you will never make yourself feel that you're a sinner because there is a mechanism in you that is a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. So in other words, it is our sin that causes us to not see the gravity of our sin. Our sin has, has so 
affected every faculty of our being that we not only don't have the ability to see Jesus as our only hope, we don't even have the ability to see the main problem that would necessitate Jesus unless God comes in and does something. So what does he do? 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, for God who said, let, the, let light shine out of darkness. What is he quoting there? Genesis 1, let there be light. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So he's saying in the same way that God said, let there be light and there was light in the universe. That's what it requires for us. He says, let there be light. And we see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To the Ephesians, Paul says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. He adopted, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And I said this last week, none, God does not owe salvation to any of us. If all of his works for the redemption of humanity were only for you, That would be more grace than humanity could ever deserve. If any of us responds to the gospel of Jesus Christ affirmatively, it is because God has said, let there be light. It is by no merit of our own. He has stepped in and allowed us to see. And if any of us reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's not on God, that's on us for our sin and our rebellion and our hardness of heart. And so Jesus is saying that something is being revealed. So I want to be really clear. What is the thing that's being revealed? In our sin, we're actually not given a thing. We're given a person. It's not something that is revealed to us to know. It's someone who has been revealed to us to know. And that someone is Jesus Christ. And so Ortland, he says, I think very helpfully, there's actually no such thing as grace. You know, if we, if we think of, of grace as a thing, that's really more of a Roman Catholic understanding of theology where grace is the stockpiled treasure that we can build and access through carefully controlled means. But the Bible says the grace comes to us no more and no less than Jesus himself comes to us. Orland says that Jesus is not Zeus, Jesus was sinless, but he was not a sinless Superman. He woke up with bedhead. He had pimples at 13. If we we're to understand Isaiah, we would, we would think that, that Jesus would never be on the cover of a men's health magazine. But he, ca- he came as a normal man, yet in every respect, like we are, tempted in every way. Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So here's the question though at this point. If Jesus is sinless, how can he relate to us as true sinners? Because if Jesus is sinless, he never, he doesn't know you would think what it feels like to give in to our sin and to the shame and the guilt that you would feel when you're not just given to sin, but maybe the same sin that you hate time and time again. How is it that Jesus can relate to us there? And C.S. Lewis makes this incredible argument that actually because of Jesus' sinlessness, he understands our temptations better than any of us do. He says once, and and he likens it to a man walking against a wind. And he says, once the wind of temptation gets strong enough, the man, us, we lie down, giving in, and thus not knowing what it would have been like 10 minutes later. 
Jesus never laid down. He endured all of our temptations and testings without ever giving in. He therefore knows the strength of temptation better than any of us because we gave up. Only he knows the true cost. So praise God that he chose to reveal this to any of us. None of us, according to the Bible, are smart enough, wise enough, born in a good enough home, born in a good enough country, spiritual enough to be able to really realize the true nature of our problem and the true answer, if we see that, it is because it has been revealed to us the way Jesus is talking about in this passage. So we see that that's true. And I think that you might even be thinking, okay, Jim, technically I can see how that's fair or not unfair, but, but I'll have to wrestle with that for a little bit. But I wanna go a step further. How is it that we can thank God for this revealing and hiding the way that Jesus is? How can we overflow with joy around this idea? This idea is what we call the doctrine of election. This is what Charles Spurgeon called a warm pillow to his head. It's what Matt Chandler calls a warm blanket to his soul. How can this doctrine of election of God choosing and God hiding, how can that become the same kind of warm blanket to our soul? That's what I wanna try to do by making six points from this text that hopefully would make us joyful over this doctrine of election. First, we can be thankful that the gospel is revealed at all. God didn't have to do this. He didn't have to engage humanity to redeem us. He could have let the whole universe just spin out in chaos the moment the man fell, but he doesn't. He engages us. He reveals the gospel to us. He still upholds the universe by the, by the word of his power. If you read Romans 9, many of us walk away asking the question, how, how could God hate Esau? But that's not the question that Romans 9 wants us to ask. God wants us to see that passage and ask, how could God love Jacob? That's the craziness of the passage. How could God love us, anybody? So we can be thankful that he has revealed the gospel at all. Secondly, we can be thankful that it is revealed to the humble. You know, God's not saying, I'm gonna reveal it to the people who earn it. I'm gonna reveal it to the people who go to church, maybe who do 51% good in their life and only 49%. However, in the world, you would figure that out. You know, I, not, he's not choosing to reveal it to the spiritual elite, those who go to church more, those who read their Bible more, not even those who pray more. He's not saying you need to hit this bar to be able to merit my salvation. He's not at the top of a bunch of stairs saying, get your way up to me. He's going down to those who are like little children who want to learn. There's nothing that is required to be a Christian outside of admitting that we are like children we need saving and Jesus is that savior. And it pains me the way that Christians in our society are viewed as, as prideful and condescending and arrogant. And, and that probably is largely the fault of Christ, people, at least the people who call themselves Christians. But that is how many people see us because that is the antithesis of what Jesus is saying marks his people. His people are people who say, we can't do it. <laughs> people who, who say, we, we need some supernatural intervention. We are too far gone. We have seen the core of who we are and it's more disgusting than I ever realized. That's the antithesis of pride. So we thank God that he comes to the humble. Third, we can be thankful because this means that God will not let us go. If it was, if it was up to us to get into the kingdom, then it, it, it stands to reason that we could get out of the kingdom. 
but because it's God who starts this thing. He who initiates, then we have every reason that it's him who's gonna keep us, that it's him who's gonna maintain us in our faith. And that's exactly what we see Paul and Jesus saying. Paul to the Philippians says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus in John 10 says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That certainly sounds like something we can't lose. And then Hebrews 10, for by a single offering that is Jesus on the cross, he has perfected for how long? For all time, who? Those of us who are here still being made holy, being sanctified. I mean, it really is a wonder to think that we are held on, not because of any merit of our own, but because he loves us. And so I was, I actually was thinking about my daughter this week and I think she has, she, poor thing, she's one girl of three, and three brothers. And I, w- I was thinking about, she has all the normal concerns of, uh, of a nine-year-old girl, but you know what concern she doesn't have? In my mind, losing my love. She actually, uh, she, she started this thing the past month where she will, uh, she'll say, daddy, I know I'm your favorite. I, I know I'm your favorite. And she'll get bonus points if she can throw that out when the boy's around. I, I, I mean, I, I'm your favorite. And, and she just, she, she, there's this confidence in my love that where she can be so bold is not just say, I know you love me, but her saying, come on, let's call it what it is. You're my favorite. And I, I, don't, I don't have a favorite child. I do have a favorite daughter though. But why is it that she can't lose my love? has nothing to do with what she does and merits. God knows it's not because she keeps her room clean. I love her because she's my daughter and she's my daughter because she's my daughter. And so she has distinguished favor with me that nobody else is gonna, gonna have and it has nothing to do with how she acts. I mean, she, think about, let's take this further. She could go down a very bad path one day and make self-destructive decisions. What is that gonna do for my love? It's actually only going to increase it My heart's gonna bleed for her. And the same is true with Jesus Christ. When we go down bad, destructive paths, the Puritans used to say, when we sin, it draws Christ's very heart out to us. There's some way when when we stray that Christ's love actually grows because he hates sin and his love grows for us, not because his love is tied to our actions, but because his love is tied to his love for us. And that's it. Again, Ortland says we have this tendency to think that if Christ is holy, then he's going to naturally withdraw from sin. And that's, it's exactly the opposite. Because Christ is holy, he hates sin more than any of us will ever understand. And it draws him to us. It causes him to come to us and want to help and want to relieve and want to protect and want to comfort us just in the same way that any of us would want to do the same for our children going down very bad self-destructive paths. It draws the heart to us. That's why we will never be snatched from his hands. Not because of what we do, but because of his love and devotion and dedication to us. Ortland uses another way of looking at this. He says, imagine that you have a child that was born with a horrible disease. How would that affect your love for your child? You would 
hate that disease more and more and more because of the love for your child. And you would actually love your child. There would be a part of your heart that's drawn to that child in a more significant way because of this besetting disease. And what Jesus is saying is we are these children and we have a besetting disease and he is not going to leave us. He is going to stay with us. He is going to protect us until the day comes when all of our pain is relieved and it is taken away and we are secured for eternity with the Father. All right, quick recap. We're thankful because Jesus has been revealed to anybody. We're thankful because he has been revealed to the humble. We're thankful because he will not let us go. And then fourthly, we can thank God because we can trust him when things get tough. How's Jesus's ministry going right now? I mean, from a worldly point of view, it's kind of in the toilet. He's been living with these people, teaching these people, doing miracles for these people, healing. He raises somebody from the dead. And when he stops producing these entertaining miracles, they just go home. They're rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Things are not going well for him, but he praises God in this moment because he knows none of this is outside of God's control. Ortland again, he shows us that when the relationship goes sour, when the feelings of futility come flooding in, when it feels like life is passing us by, when it seems like our one shot at significance has slipped through our fingers, when we can't sort out our own emotions, when longtime friends let us down, when a family member betrays us, when we feel deeply misunderstood, when we were laughed at by the impressive, when the fallenness of this world closes in on us as it will, and makes us want to throw in the towel right there. We have a friend who knows us and a God who is in control of it all. And may we in that moment be able to say like Jesus in verse 26, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And this is exactly what Paul says in Romans 8. These are very famous verses. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good all things, the painful, the hard. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed into the image of his son. So what's happening is Paul is saying that now when we experience pain and difficulty, these are no longer the punitive aspects of living in a fallen world. These are now purifying aspects that conform us more and more into the image of God. And the more we're conformed into the image of the Son, there we experience the joy, increasing joy that we're, made, we're designed to experience as those who have been chosen and called and eyes opened and been extended this invitation in Jesus Christ. All right, fifth, we should be thankful because it fuels evangelism. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, mostly during my years in campus ministry, well, if we believe in a God who's fundamentally the main person who's opening eyes and calling people to himself, then that's just gonna kill our people's motivation to go out and tell people about Jesus. So I'm not not gonna teach that because it'll, it'll be this wet blanket on evangelism. Well, the exact opposite is true. I mean, Jesus's ministry, again, human eyes, human perspective, it's in the toilet but he's praising God because he knows God's still in control. God is the one revealing it. And if we think about it, that would only be motivation for us to go out and tell other people. Because if it's, if it's up to me to go and try and change someone's heart 
and help them see their sin and see that Jesus is the answer, I'm going to give up now. There's no skill set that can change somebody's heart. But if we believe that God is going forward and that God is, is already ahead of our work, opening hearts, opening eyes who are ready to hear the gospel, then that should be motivating because we're going to go out and we're going to share the gospel. And yes, some people are going to respond negatively. It's hidden from them, but there are going to be all these people who say yes, because God's already working. The guy who shared the gospel with me at the right time in my fraternity house had no idea that for weeks I had been praying, God, I don't have faith and I'm not happy. And I'm open to you being the answer to that. But I'm not gonna just fake myself into believing something. You, it's on you. And then this guy came up and this is, to my knowledge, it's the first time the gospel wasn't shared in that place in a long time. When Paul was scared to go to Corinth, he was scared to go into Corinth in Acts 13 and share the gospel. And Jesus showed up to him. And what did Jesus say? He said, fear not, for I have many people in this town. And these were people who hadn't even heard the gospel yet. They hadn't been converted yet. But Jesus was telling Paul, I'm already claiming them. They're already mine. All you have to do is go in there. And that doesn't shut Paul down. That doesn't act as some sort of uh, uh, evangelism wet blanket. I mean, this, that encourages Paul to go and to tell because Jesus has already claimed people in that place. So understanding the doctrine of election, it should actually encourage us in our desire and efforts to tell people about Jesus. And it should be hope for your friends and family who, who do you seem so far from Jesus. People who you think are just too cold to the gospel, they're too far gone. The story is not finished until the last breath is taken. No person is beyond the reach of the grace of God. And that is where the doctrine of election should give us great comfort. I think it was William Wilberforce. I'm doing this from memory. He said, when I arrive in heaven, I will look around and I will see people I did not expect to be there. And I will see people, I will not see people that I did expect to see there. But most of all, I will be amazed that I myself am there. And then lastly, a high view of God's sovereignty. It should make us humble. And so I started saying that the invitation is extended to the humble, but the invitation itself continues to humble. I mean, the more we realize that, that we have this, this incredible gift of the love of God that secures our place in eternity with him forever by no merit of our own, but just because he loved us and opened our eyes, that has a humbling effect. I remember my first professor at RTS, Richard Pratt, he said, he said you can't have a high view of God's sovereignty and be prideful. If you're a prideful person, there's something about God's sovereignty you don't understand. You're holding a low view of God's sovereignty if, if you think you're in some way better than other, that you earned something that makes you a Christian and other people just aren't smart enough to realize it. To the humble comes the invitation and the invitation makes us humble. Does this align you anymore with Jesus's heart for a God who is so sovereign that he chooses to reveal and chooses to hide. Are you thankful that Jesus comes to us as grace and no effort on our part? As a person and not merely a set of information to digest and reiterate at the right place and time? Are you thankful that he comes as permanent 
and not temporary. So the whole first point of this three-part sermon, how is it that we have access to this invitation? Because God has chosen to reveal it to us. Next week, we're going to see who it is that's extending this invitation. And the week after that, we look at the invitation itself. Let's pray. God, I can't imagine anybody in this room who really understands, me included, the grace that we get. Anyone who perfectly lives out that grace. But I pray that today, uh, that grace that we are your children, not because of anything that we've done, but just because you have chosen, chosen us in your love, that, that there would be this thankfulness that would at least begin for others of us overflow in our hearts, that it would be this warm pillow that Spurgeon talks about, this warm blanket that Matt Chandler talks about. I pray that that would be true and that it would make us humble that it would draw people into your kingdom and that this doctrine would shape us in a way that would cause us to be a people through which your kingdom grows in this city. We thank you, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.